Well, I just want to begin by thanking uh, Pastor Wes and the staff for allowing me to speak today. Um, this is a church uh, that I'm very privileged to call home, and so much of that is due to the good ministry from our staff. So I know we have plenty of competent preachers, wonderful people who bring the word of the Lord to us on a regular basis. So I'm very thankful for the chance to share the pulpit with them. And I'm honored to stand before you all today. Um, many times when I've spoken here before, I've said how you, the members of our church, were a big part of Jill and I deciding to return to Houghton. We knew that this was a place that we uh, would love to raise our children uh, in a place with lots of wonderful people who we've admired for many years. So I've said that a lot, and it's still true, but I also want to say how happy I am that our church is changing in many ways, and that there are new people here too. It's not just that I look forward to all the old people and they haven't disappointed me. They haven't. But I'm also glad to see that our church is changing. It ought to change over time. And uh, it dawned on me, you know, as I first started having children and watching nieces and nephews come into the family, that the people I thought of as my family when I was growing up were not the people that I would think of as my family when I'm an old man, and that I was just meeting my family that I was going to have when I was an old man. And so in many ways, it's fun to see uh, new family members come into my life, people who are speaking into my life and to our family's life. We're very thankful for you as well. Uh, Over May term, in this past year at the college, I uh, did a a men's Bible study on Philippians, and when we studied chapter 2, I came to a realization about the passage that was read this morning, and it's a passage that I know well, with language that kind of trips off the tongue, Uh, and yet I had always thought of the various parts of the passage as separate from each other. I hadn't really thought of it as one long passage with one meaning that sort of made the whole thing cohere. I had thought of it in terms of three bite-sized chunks. The first being that lovely, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus uh, poem that was read. Uh, Kelly, it's hard for me to remember to hear that without thinking about Ben King singing a solo of, let this mind, you know, Ben King. Oh, man, to have a voice like that, let this mind. Yeah, anyway, it was wonderful. Uh, so they had this, this, let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Uh, such a wonderful phrase. But I had always considered it very, very different and separate from what comes after it. This phrase about work out your own salvation. That's another phrase that I'm familiar with, but I haven't really paid attention that it comes right in the same phrase as this. It's right in the same passage, right in the same context. And then comes this third part about do everything without grumbling and arguing or murmuring and arguing, as the NRSV puts it. Again, I'm familiar with that passage, but I hadn't paused to consider that all three of those ideas flow in a coherent, uh, sensible narrative. And so what I want to do this morning is think about each of these in light of the other to maybe make the whole thing make a little more sense altogether. So let's consider that first part first. Let this mind be in you, now that I have Dr. King in your mind and you'll all picture him. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. A lovely, deep, poetic passage about the possibilities of the Christian life. And if you're reading, like I say, if you're reading along in most translations, it's set aside as poetry. It's commonly understood to be a hymn that the early church would have sang or, re- or sung or recited. Sang or sung. I'm preaching in front of English people. I'm sorry. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a song they would have done. How's that? And, uh, and, or a poem they would have recited that talked about who Jesus was. Now, what's uh, interesting about this is that the book of Philippians predates the writing of the Gospels. 
And so we don't often think about how the early church sits around and they don't have the New Testament to help us understand what on earth Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension means. It's up to them to sort of figure out what, what do all these, you know, they had oral traditions. They had stories passed on about what Jesus had done and the fact that he had risen from the dead and the fact that he had healed and all these things. But it was up to them to sort of make sense of, of what it all meant. And, of course, that's what the Gospels essentially set out to do was to take these oral traditions and write them into a coherent narrative that could help people make sense of what did this man's life, death, resurrection, what did it all mean? And so what we have here is a very early attempt to make sense of what it all meant before the Gospels were even written. And it's very challenging if we listen to it. It's very challenging. I, I suppose this is one of these things because we've heard this talked about enough. We often think of it in light of the rest of the Gospels and the rest of the things that we know about Jesus. And so we sort of know how to fit it into our worldview. But if you just read this passage on its own, its picture of Jesus and the relationship between Jesus and God is quite challenging. It's challenging in a couple ways. I mean, it's challenging first, again, because of that relationship between Jesus and God. Um, You know, the Gospel of John, for example, one of the latest Gospels, probably the latest Gospel to be written has a a picture of Jesus as very clear about what's going on throughout, especially through the crucifixion. He's very in control. He's calm. He understands all of it. But what we have here is a picture that's complementary. But it challenges that picture a little bit because we have a picture here of Jesus who God sort of invites to descend. He was equal with God, but he didn't choose to hang on to that. He chose to give that away in order to become a person. And even though he had all the rights of a person when he was born, he chose not to cling to all those rights, but to become a servant, a slave. And even though he had the right to life as a slave, he chose not to hang on to that, but he chose to die. And even though he had the right, as, many of us, as much as any of us have, the right to a peaceful and dignified death, he chose even the death on a cross, even a, an undignified death of a criminal. And there, then, we see this picture. Therefore, because of this, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. If you just read this passage on its own, it looks like Jesus is being tested and tested again and again and again. And because he passes every test, God says, okay, now I will exalt you. Now I will give you the name that is above every name. Now I will make you my son. Again, please don't hear this as saying, this is why we don't do theology based on one passage of the Bible, but in the whole context. But this particular passage really emphasizes the humanity of Jesus. This is part and parcel of who Jesus is, and we can't underestimate it, even though it does make us a little bit uncomfortable. We can't make him any less than human. There was something in Jesus that had to go through this. Even Hebrews tells us this in saying, you know, even though he's the son of God, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So this picture of Jesus is very human. It's it's very startling. And it it depicts Jesus and God in ways that we often pass over in favor of pictures of, you know, he's co-eternal with God. He's with God from the beginning. Through him all things were made. And on and on the creeds go. But this picture is also part of it. It's part of what it means to be Jesus. It's unsettling to us. Now, the other unsettling thing about this passage, uh, frankly, is also really amazing. It's one of those things that's really good news and terrifying news all at once, sort of like you're pregnant, right? That's good news and terrifying news. I mean, it would be really terrifying news if I were pregnant, but (laughs) it's good news and terrifying news all at once. You're pregnant. And this is the same way. This is very good news and very terrifying news. You can have the same mind that Jesus had. 
Let the same mind be in you. That was also in Christ Jesus. Paul suggests somehow that the same sort of life is available to us. That we can make the same choices that Jesus made. That we can allow Christ's mind to actually live in us. To follow the same descending way that Jesus follows. Taking all of our rights and all of our privileges. And giving them away until we have given ourselves away completely. Now, I wish I could tell you honestly this morning that I've always believed that, but I've spent a great deal of my Christian life running away from the obvious implications of this passage. Sometimes I I run away from it because I just can't imagine Paul really means this. Let the same mind be in you that is also in Christ Jesus is a really nice sentiment. I mean, it would make a great greeting card. But, but I just can't imagine sometimes when push comes to shove that it's actually true. I mean, sure, I would love to do this. But, but deep down, I know that I have an unhealthy attachment to the things of this world. Sure, I'd love to have the mind of, of Christ. But I, but I have an inferiority complex that I nurture every day so that other people will take care of me because deep down I'm afraid of giving myself away. I mean, sure, I'd love to have the mind of Christ and to live each day with the calm assurance that I can give my life away because certainly I'll be able to take it up again. I mean, I would love that, but let's be honest, the best I can hope for is to hide my greed from all of you or to to battle my lust to an unhealthy stalemate. I mean, let the mind of Christ Jesus be in me. I mean, I... I guess so, but to do that, I would have to clear out the house of cards that I have built there, that self-justification that's in my heart and mind right now, and, and, and that house of cards, that self-justification lets me sleep at night. So I've spent a long time running away from the idea that the mind of Christ could actually live in me because it would mean overturning a lot of deeply held assumptions in my life. I've also run away from the implications of this passage, though, for maybe for a better reason, because it seems designed just for Jesus. Because he could do this. God gave him the name that is above every name, and, and clearly God is not going to do that for me. Um, it's not going to be that at the, name, at the end of time, at the name of Mike Jordan, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Mike Jordan is Lord. That's not how it works. We know that. So sometimes I've thought it's really obvious that we can't have the mind of Christ living in us because anybody who would follow that way had to be God. And yet here it is in ink. No matter how hard I scratch away at it with an eraser, it's not going anywhere. Let this mind be in you. So what's it mean? Am I supposed to let Jesus' mind be in me or not? And, and if so, how can I let Jesus' mind be in me when it's obvious that I'm not going to be the Lord of the universe at the end of it? What does it mean? Well, look at what's next. That's why I say context is really important. Thank heavens God doesn't send us these things in little packets, even though we sometimes treat it like that for sermons. But (laughs) God doesn't send us these little things in packets. He puts them in a book like this. And the context is really important. And that's why it's important to realize this is just one passage, not two or three. Paul says, therefore, because of everything I've just told you about this descending way of Jesus and the way he's going to be glorified, Because Jesus has chosen this way to give himself away and so be raised to life. Therefore, because of this way of working, you work out your own salvation. Jesus has done his work this way. Now you work out your salvation. And lest you think that that puts too much in your court, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
Because as much as it's you working, God is at work within you, enabling you to will and to work for his good pleasure. That phrase, work out your own salvation, I've heard it in a number of folk songs. It's one of those passages, little phrases from the Bible that somehow worked its way into uh, American English, you know, it's still sort of a, a phrase that people recognize. It's from the Bible. And it's actually, you know, work out your own salvation. If you just look at those five words, it's a very congenial passage for American culture, isn't it? This idea of work out your own salvation means essentially in the context of our culture, what's going on in your heart is something that you need to enact. And if you live out what's in your heart, you're going to find your way. Work out your own salvation could be the life verse on its own for our culture. You need to figure this out on your own. You you only know your heart, so follow it. Work it out. Work out your own salvation. Your, Your intuitions about God are as good as anybody else's, so work it out. Live out your own salvation. But we know, we know, right, because of what Paul has just said. Again, thanks heavens for for context. We know because of what we've just read that this is the exact opposite of what Paul means. Jesus is praiseworthy because he gave himself away against all self-interest. And his obedience, his self-emptying, results in salvation. An eternity where things are set right in the kingdom of God and things are as they should be. So therefore, we follow Jesus in giving ourselves away. We, we do what he did. We allow his mind to be in us. We follow Jesus giving ourselves away. And as we give ourselves away, we discover things being set right in our lives as a result. And we discover that the saving grace of God has been there all along, but obscured by our self-centeredness. Work out your own salvation doesn't mean do what seems right to you, but quite the opposite. It means give yourself away just like Jesus did until you discover that it's in the self-emptying that you best embody the glory of God in your daily life. And here's the paradox, right? As we work out our salvation, as we give ourselves away, as we undertake works that help point us and others to God, we discover that God's at work in us. The more we make a choice to give ourselves away, the more we discover that God is the one who enables us to make those choices, to will and to work. God is enabling us to give ourselves away, and the more we look like the Christ we worship, and the more that our salvation is being enacted day by day, which has an impact for us and an impact for all those with whom we come into contact. Now, that's fine. I mean, that's good, all good, I hope, theological work. I think it is, and you can draw your own conclusions. But I want to pause for just a second here and, and think about our daily lives. Because often when we, when we have that idea of how do I take on the mind of Christ, we think about mental work or mental and emotional resolve that results in action. So most of us, when we think about what it might mean to take on the mind of Christ, think through, think about difficult choices. We think about when we go to the grocery store and the clerk gives us too much change. And we think to ourselves, golly, I'd like to take this change home and treat myself to fish fry this week. But I don't know, I feel like I should give it back, so I'll give it back. I have to have the mind of Christ. Here you go, I'll be honest. Or we, you know are asked to make a meal for someone who's sick and we think, well, I was going to watch 
season four of Downton Abbey tonight, but I guess I'll make a meal because this person needs a meal made and I have the mind of Christ and I have to do it. I want you to to see the distinction there between that approach to living out the mind of Christ and what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying, take on the mind of Christ. Take it aggressively. Take it out to the world and impose it. He's saying, allow this mind to be in you. Allow it to happen, not by the things that you do, but in the way that you're acted upon. Make choices that are about giving yourself away and descending, descending, descending. And then when you've reached the bottom, you will discover life as it was meant to be lived. In choosing to give yourself away, you learn to become like Christ. So perhaps it's actually the reverse of what we usually do. Maybe it's not so much that we take on the mind of Christ in order to make all those little choices well. Maybe instead when we make those little choices to give ourselves away, we start to learn to think with the mind of Christ. Think of the way, for instance, those of you that are part of a family will understand. Well, all of us are parts of families. Uh, So you can think about this with the person who's most irritating in your family. Uh, I won't ask you who that is or ask for a testimony or anything. But, you know, uh, we often think of the way that we serve our family in this way. I think, I'm a dad. I've got four kids. I want to be a godly dad for my family. I read books about how to be a godly dad. I need to pray. I need to psych myself up in order to be like Jesus to them. I need to think with the mind of Christ so that I can go out there and be a good husband when Jill is tired and a good dad when the kids are fighting. And so I put on my armor and I go on there out there to be a good dad, even if it kills me. But, (laughs) but what if, yeah, that's that's for you. I'm to be a good dad. That's not, that's not my kid. I don't think, but, (laughs) but what if, what if that's not the way it's supposed to work at all? What if it's not just me out there being Jesus to my family? Me learning how to be Jesus from some direct connection that only I have with God and I gotta take that to my family, my primary mission field. What if my family is one of the ways that God is changing my mind and my heart? I remember the last time we visited my in-laws. I really like my in-laws. Please don't hear any Mike doesn't like his in-laws. Mike loves his in-laws. Great people. Uh, One's a Houghton grad. Wonderful people. They're just like Jill. I mean, you know they're great people. So anyway, last time we were visiting them, some of Jill's sisters were also visiting. Also great people. But between us, we got a bunch of kids at this point. So we, Jill and I, were sleeping in one room with our four kids around us in sleeping bags on the floor. It was a little tight, you know? And uh, so we were all there, and everybody was cozy and getting to know each other well. I managed to get to bed without stepping on anybody, which I considered a major achievement. And, uh, but that night, about two in the morning, little Lucy, Lucy who will be four in just a week, and she'll tell you about it, but little Lucy, two in the morning. <coughs> and of course, you hear a cough, and if you're a parent, you know this, the adrenaline just, you know, makes you sit up. My kid coughed. And Lucy had these perfectly timed so that it would take about eight or ten minutes between coughs. And so just long enough for the adrenaline to fade away. And as you fell back asleep, (coughs) and the whole cycle starts again. And I'm certain it was for at least 11 hours. It wasn't that long. But you know know how it seems. Like you're like, I've been awake all night. And of course you have no idea of the time really. And all of us, right, Jack sleeps near Lucy at home. So he's sort of used to this. So he didn't mind. But Grace woke up. Heard Lucy, (coughs) and she decided about 12 coughs in that she'd had enough, and she said, Lucy, 
like that. Lucy! <laughs> and I said, Grace, Grace, just calm down, calm down. And then, of course, Gabriel hears Grace, and he said, wake up, wake up, <laughs> our, our little two-year-old. So all of a sudden, everybody's awake except for Jack, and uh, we're all, you know, varying degrees of aggravated. Lucy said, Gracie, it's not my fault. I just have to cough, you know, and so <laughs> five of the six of us in the room are really frustrated with each other. Now, it's those kinds of situations where we say to ourselves, okay, now's the time. Now's the time for me to act with the mind of Christ, How am I going to communicate with Lucy, who has got a cold, Grace, who is angry, Gabriel, who's awake and sweet but aggravating, and Jill, who's really frustrated? How am I going to be Jesus for each of these people? How am I going to think with the mind of Christ today in a way that helps me communicate the love of Christ? Practically speaking, at 2 a.m. in an annoying, crowded room, how am I just not going to degenerate into sheer anger? How am I going to let the mind of Christ be in me? We think of this as a time to practice the mind of Christ. Perhaps, maybe that's, maybe that's advanced placement, living <laughs> with the mind of Christ. Does that make sense? Perhaps this is not the time when we should most be focused on practicing the mind of Christ. Perhaps this is an ideal time to learn the mind of Christ. Does that make sense? He's not, Paul isn't saying enact the mind of Christ. He's saying allow it to be in you by choosing to give yourself away to other people. Maybe the stress of three o'clock in the morning, wide awake with grouchy sick children, is not the time to practice the mind of Christ. Maybe that's the time to realize with fear and trembling how little of the mind of Christ is in you. And how desperately you need to learn it. And maybe to silently give thanks, if you can muster it, that you're surrounded by these people who can teach you. Because it's in choosing to give yourself away that you learn to become like Christ. It's the reverse of what we actually do. Maybe, maybe it's not that we steal our minds and say, okay, Jesus, I got to get this resolve from you somewhere. Give it to me so I can give it to them. Maybe it's there. He's saying, I'm teaching you now. <laughs> Pay attention. Give yourself away and see what you learn. And of course, it's a cycle because when we learn the mind of Christ, it, begins, it becomes easier to practice it the next time. I thought all of this when I was reading a speech from Pope Francis recently where he said the family is a school for civility in a barbaric world. What if that's true? What if my family is not my primary mission field, but instead a school to teach all of us civility, all six of us. True life, what true life really is. The difference is between me seeing myself on one hand as a finished product, sharing my brilliance with my family, of course, all the while deeply unsure about my own brilliance. And on the other hand, seeing myself as an unfinished product who's learning to give himself away for my good and for the good of the people around me. This, I think, is what it means to take on the mind of Christ, to find new ways to give myself away in order to discover when I get to the very bottom who I really am, to discover what it means to be a kingdom person. And yet this way of thinking about our lives is so foreign, even amongst Christians. We're so very consumed with the idea of our own purity and the idea of we have to give, we have to give because we have to show Christ's love that we sometimes just are not capable of thinking about what others are giving to us and that we're products, that we're being made into the image of Christ by people who are around us. 
I certainly didn't think that way when I thought about marrying Jill, for instance. I didn't, didn't think about that. I thought, will we always be in love? That was the question I asked myself. Can I marry this girl? Is it okay to commit? Will we always be in love? I realized now it was a slightly more Christianly appropriate way of asking, will I always be happy? Which was, of course, a question that is a silly question to ask. <laughs> of course you're not going to always be happy. But yet, that's the sort of question we ask ourselves before a major life decision. We dress it up a little bit, but we ask that question. I know as we've, our family's grown, we have like 11,000 children at this point. But before, we don't have that many. But before we have more, I always think, can, how, uh, you know, how will this potential kid affect the quality of life in our house? That's a, that's a Christian way of asking, will this kid make me happy? Yeah. Instead of, how can I best give myself away? Now, I'm not telling you to run out and have a bunch of kids. So if nine months from now we have a whole bunch of kids running around, don't blame me. I'm just saying, when you think about these questions, so often we think about it in terms of what's going to, be, what's going to make it a, a, a livable situation for me instead of perhaps there's a new me waiting to be born <laughs> that can only come when I put myself in situations that require growth and require giving myself away. So when I'm talking to students now who are thinking about getting married, I just want to ask them, don't think about whether you'll always be happy. Think, is this a person I want to start a school with? (laughs) A school where we're always both teachers and we're always both students. And together we teach and learn from any little ones that the Lord sees fit to give us. A school where we learn the mind of Christ together by giving ourselves away to each other and to the world. When I take care of a sick baby, way more than I show the mind of Christ, I learn the mind of Christ. When I honor my marriage vows by avoiding sexual temptation, even more than I show the mind of Christ, I learn it. Whenever I make a choice to put my comfort and self-interest to death, even more than I show the mind of Christ, I learn it. And of course, please don't mishear me. This is not just for married people. (laughs) The family is not the only school for civility. Marriage and family are very efficient ways of calling out selfless action in us. But God has a much more important vision for the Christian life than simply marriage. God calls all of us into schools of civility, into relationship schools where we learn the mind of Christ by giving ourselves away to each other. It's called the church. The church is the body of Christ, and so it's the perfect context to learn to think with the mind of Christ. And yet, it's, right, it's the perfect context to learn what it means to give yourself away because you're theoretically surrounded with all these lovely and good people who are also in process of giving themselves away. And yet, you and I both know that that's not how we evaluate churches. We think to ourselves, just as we think with our spouses, will this person make me happy? We think, will this church make me happy? And, and we dress it up. I mean, we say, will this provide me with relevant teaching and preaching that I need Will it put reassuring people around me from my preferred demographic? Maybe you don't ask it exactly that way, but we all ask it. We ask these questions usually with the best of intentions. But I think we ask that question because our idea of what it means to have the mind of Christ is wrong. We think, I need a place that will take care of me because I've got a a world out there that I've got to go show Jesus to. And if I don't get taken care of, I'm not going to be able to do it. When in reality... (laughs) If what the world is for is not just out there for us to be, to be a mission field to, or for them to be our mission field, but for us to learn by giving ourselves away to learn the mind of Christ, it becomes far less important that we get our way in matters ecclesial. 
If the church only reinforces the, the world's idea that we can have the mind of Christ as long as we have everything just the way we want it, the church fails. Instead, the church is a place where we, we learn to live together despite how weird everyone is. Yes, I'm looking at you. No, <laughs> No, some, and some churches are more efficient at this than other places. You know, I'll leave it to you to determine just how efficient our church is at surrounding us with weird people. But, but the church is a place, right, where we learn to put aside idols that we believe deeply in and discover that we're better off without them. And, and the church is a place where we learn the mind of Christ by learning that despite what the advertisers might tell you, you can be happy even if everything is not exactly in the way that you choose. And so it's for this reason that when Paul talks about how to work out your salvation, he gives us only one command. Now, I don't know what I would do if you asked me, I just, I want to follow Jesus. What's the one thing I have to do? I don't know what I would say. I know my first instinct would not be to say what Paul said. Here's what Paul said. Do all things without grumbling and arguing. It seems like a strange place to start. I was, uh, I was talking with a student about that phrase, in fact. It was a student who was raised in this church. And he noticed that grumbling and arguing are things, both things that we do to set ourselves in opposition to others. Arguing is what we do publicly. It's where we fight for the rightness of our agenda publicly and aggressively. Grumbling, on the other hand, is when we fight for the rightness of our agenda privately in the parking lot after the business meeting has been ended and things didn't go the way we wanted. And Paul rules both of them out because he knows that both grumbling and arguing are ways to keep self-interest alive. And of course, he, because of what we've just read, Self-interest will keep you from giving yourself away and attaining the mind of Christ in this self-giving, descending way. As long as we are utterly convinced of our own rightness and unable to listen to others, we become deaf to the voice of God as it comes in giving ourselves away to others. The more that we are convinced that the world will be right when we argue it into submission, the more that we think we have to aggressively impose the mind of Christ onto others rather than learn it ourselves. And then we wonder why we don't think with the mind of Christ. But, but does this mean we don't have opinions? No, of course not. We all have opinions. Does this mean we let anything pass for truth? No, no. But it does mean we can always listen without fear. We can always listen with open minds and open hearts. Always be willing to be sharpened and corrected. Because we, we know it's our listening that teaches us to be like Jesus. And it's, of course, our listening that demonstrates to the rest of the world that salvation is to be found in listening to the word of God as well. Perhaps a broken world doesn't find Christ most compelling in us when we teach them what's correct with our airtight theological constructs. But when we listen... Because it's when we listen that we demonstrate that we are living in victory over the self-interest that dominates everybody else. Well, I have to tell you one more story, and then I will take my seat, I promise. Yesterday, I was looking around on Facebook, speaking of toxic activities that will kill you eventually, but... And I, I saw one of our students up at the college, a recent grad, actually, and she posted a little 
pot shot about chapel, how it wasn't what she was hoping it would be or something. It wasn't anything super mean. But it kind of set my teeth on edge, you know. I, you know, If you want to get right to my heart, like if you want the shortcut to kill me, maybe I shouldn't be telling you this, but if you want the shortcut to kill me emotionally, just criticize me without talking with me. You know, that's a really hard thing. And I suppose it's hard for all of us. But it was, it was hard to receive that. But what happened on Facebook was it touched off this little mini gripe session about Houghton. And it's one that many of us have even had when we were students at Houghton, if you went there. And it's, we all have little gripe sessions about Houghton from time to time. I shouldn't make more of it than it was. But, it, it, you know, it was about how sort of, you know, conservative and petty and backward the town is. Like I say, it might have been the same thing I might have said 17 years ago, except we didn't have the internet to preserve my thoughts for all eternity. But So I thought, what am I going to do? How am I going to react to this person? Because part of me was motivated by my own sense of pride, and part of me was wounded for those of us who are all sort of together in this project at Houghton. You know, I thought, this is a good thing we're doing, and I don't want a student to think it's a bad thing. And so my first inclination was to argue with her and just to type on Facebook, well, you know, maybe here's where your thinking is a little bit, not to be mean. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm never mean. You know that about me. But, you know, just to say, oh, you know, maybe you're, maybe you're remembering wrong. I mean, this, remember this happened, and that happened, and, and Houghton was a really good place. It was a really good experience, you know. And then I thought, no, I can't do that. I mean, <laughs> there's no point in arguing. And plus, it's going to turn mean whether I want it to be mean or not. So don't do that. So then I went to option two in my head. And option two was to write something like, I'm praying for you. Yeah, maybe that wasn't motivated by any great stuff either. But I was trying, right? I was saying, I need to think with the mind of Christ here. And so what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to post this kind of passive-aggressive thing that demonstrates to the student, A, the dean of the chapel's listening, B, the dean of the chapel's a grown-up, and so he can listen to your stuff without responding back in kind, and C, maybe I should have listened to the dean of the chapel a little more, you know? That's the kind of stuff that was going on in my mind. I think this is what happens when we try to act out the mind of Christ in this way, sometimes, I wanted to show them that I had listened to their little diatribe and I was still able to be mature and Christian enough to be sweet and dignified and righteous. So I had to turn that down after a little reflection. As delicious as that might have been to do, I chose not to. And so I chose option three, which I think was the right thing, to not do anything. I chose to listen as much as possible without grumbling or arguing, without needing to be proved right or remembered as righteous, without defending my reputation or the reputation of an institution I love. Why? Because I think sometimes we just need to listen. I think sometimes we just need to be incarnational without, without proving our sufficiency. We're proving our righteousness. When I thought about it a little more, I realized that I think our desire sometimes to defend God is a thinly disguised desire to defend ourselves. And this Facebook post was a chance for me, like Jesus, I hope, to make myself of no reputation by refusing to make an idol of my own reputation, by starving that idol and hoping that one day that idol will die. 
It was a chance for me to, to trust God with these young people's stories rather than insist that I had to be the hero in that story or even a good guy in it. It was a chance for me, I think, to follow a man who brought something wonderful to the world, but also almost nobody got it. So let me just put this before you as we face the week together, Houghton Church, or maybe as we face the years together. Sometime today, in some little way, someone you love is going to drop the ball or demand something of you. Sometime today, someone is going to hand you a scrub brush or a bedpan or a professional demotion or a crying baby. Sometime today, someone's going to hand you a raw deal on Facebook or a vacuum cleaner or a hammer and nails. And it will be tempting for you to say, all right, I've got to have the mind of Christ. I've got to do this. I've got to do this because I've got to be the good one here. But maybe I want to encourage you to think of it differently. Perhaps when someone hands that to you today, whatever it is, maybe this is one way God has of handing you a basin and a towel. Maybe this is one way God has of handing you a cross. And, and sometimes, no doubt, it's right to say, no, I can't. But, but sometimes it will be right to say, yes, I can. Not because I'm so godly and loving, not because I think with the mind of Christ and you don't, but because I'm very painfully aware that I'm not so godly and loving. I'm painfully aware that I don't yet think with the mind of Christ, but I want to. And this might be a way to get there. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. And being found in human form, he humbled himself unto death, even the death of the cross. Work out your own salvation like him. Let's pray. God, like any good sermon, what I've just asked these people to do is well nigh impossible. We, uh, we can't do this on our own strength. We know, God, that something in us still recoils when we hear, take up your cross and follow me. We pray, God, though, that you would help us to see the ways that we are giving ourselves away and how we are being transformed into your likeness. And help us not to be afraid. We know it's not always right to give ourselves away, but help us not to live in fear of it. Help us to give ourselves away without fear, knowing that when we have given ourselves away completely, life with you awaits, salvation awaits as surely as it waited for your son. We look forward together, God, to the day in which every knee will bow and every tongue confess him, Jesus Christ is Lord. We pray, God, that you would haste that day and make it a reality among us. We pray all this through Christ. Amen.